0: Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the fourth in a series of webinars on the coronavirus and the associated mental health illnesses. This is coordinated by the Palm Beach County Medical Society and was recorded May 15th, 2020.
1: Good evening and welcome to the Physician and Healthcare Professionals Mental Health Virtual Meeting. This is a recurring presentation of the Palm Beach County Medical Society COVID-19 Response Task Force. I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Dr. Abby Strauss. Hello, Abby. Hello. Hello, Brent. Good evening. And uh, tonight's evening. topic will be a focus on child, adolescent, and family emotional issues in relation to the COVID pandemic. Now, our special guests tonight are Dr. Samantha Saltz. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist practicing in Boca Raton, and Dr. Robert Spiro, who is a clinical psychologist specializing in family issues, also practicing in Boca Raton. Welcome everyone to the program. And as always, we encourage interactive discussion, and we invite everyone on the webinar to join in with your questions or just uh, share your experiences. In previous programs, we've talked a great deal about the emotional impact of COVID doctors, on healthcare personnel. We've had some provocative discussions on the stresses and the resultant anxieties that our patients are presenting with, not just in a specific mental health setting, but across the board, including general medical practice, emergency rooms, and so forth. For the next hour, we're going to be probing a bit deeper. We're going to be looking into some of the issues that affect specifically the younger demographics of our practices the children. So, you know, kids, kids may not be as susceptible physically to the virus, certainly as other age groups, but they are for sure, especially vulnerable to so many of the secondary impacts of the pandemic on society. So let's jump right in with the question. What's different in your clinical practice since the pandemic took over, what, six, eight weeks ago? Sam Saltz, please jump in on that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm happy to help. Well, the the big elephant in the room is that everything has pretty much changed to a virtual platform. And I'm seeing children, adolescents, and their parents, obviously through telemedicine, which has been a big change for a lot of patients. And then for some patients who already were seeing me through telemedicine, it's not much of a change at all. I'm actually seeing surprisingly that the parents are more affected by the COVID-19 pandemic mentally than the children and adolescents. And I'm seeing that children and adolescents tend to be unbelievably resilient during this period and to be doing actually pretty well considering being quarantined for the past two months.
1: And Robert what what are you seeing different now than, say, pre-pandemic, if we can even remember when that day was?
3: Sure. The telemedicine part, of course, is a big change. But I'm also seeing a tremendous increase in anxiety, especially in in couples. Whatever issues were there before have become more, more profound, more accelerated, difficult to avoid, I think, which also presents an opportunity with a lot of the couples I'm working with that it's been a time to say, You're together. You're not going anywhere. Let's use this time to work on the issues that perhaps you kept avoiding or postponing. And that's actually been quite
1: successful. As I see it, daily structure, routine, that's something that's particularly important to children in terms of their psychological, in terms of their emotional development. And school has been the primary source for structure and socialization for kids. What happens when this structure is disturbed, as clearly there's a big disturbance now?
2: I think that the main thing that happens when the child structure is disturbed is that their sense of purpose and tasks for day-to-day activities completely kind of went to the wayside. So what's happened is while children used to have a purpose of going to school, getting up in the morning, brushing their teeth, their whole structure in that realm has been completely turned upside down. So a lot of the children adolescents that I'm seeing are sometimes sleeping through their first class, which is all virtual. They are laying in their bed to do their homework, and there's really not much sunlight that many of them are even getting um, and going outside at all. Parents tend to be frustrated because they're not having the motivation to get up and do things like they used to do. No real physical activity. Sometimes they're not even going outside and swimming. They're really kind of just restricting themselves to the beds. And the truth of the matter is, is when children, adolescents don't get up, don't get emotionally engaged and are just lying down in, in a dark room all day, obviously that disturbs their whole circadian rhythm, changes their sleep cycle, and actually can put them at risk for going into a depression. Despite the fact that, that some of them have had their structure completely turned upside down, I think that they actually, most of them are pretty, pretty resilient.
1: What's been your experience, Robert? In terms of the, we would call like a disturbance in the structure, the school structure that that kids have relied on that now isn't quite what it was.
3: I'm not seeing really any patients with with young kids. I see a lot of grandparents who talk about their grandkids. And from what I've heard from them and I've inquired, if the parents create a routine and a structure which is critical. The kids seem to adapt well, go along with that, and and seem to, I often will hear, they're not that different. They get along with it fine. Again, I think they take their cues very much from their parents. Parents are anxious. Parents can't create a routine for themselves, then, then the kids become more agitated and, and anxious. Now
1: on the school topic, Abby, you told me you had some particular concerns about kids when they actually return to school, when we get to that stage, if and when, but I think it's matter when we get to that stage.
0: I think it's a when thing. My concern is the sense of safety. And I am troubled also by mental health, sometimes overselling our ability to soften that sense of safety and say, you will be okay. And I wonder how kids, kids, as we all know, are usually a lot smarter and a lot more astute that we adults give them credit for being and they're asking questions, how do I know that it's safe? How do I know that it's okay to play with my friends? Little children have a natural propensity to go play, to move, to do things, to interact, of course, but will they be frightened? Will we be sending kids back into school that, again, don't feel safe? And I'm curious from both Dr. Spiro and Dr. Soltz's perspective, how the parents are helping themselves and their kids prepare for this fear factor. And if someone can say that I'm overdoing it, then please correct me, correct me. But I just get this sense. And to the contrary, and this is one of those convoluted questions, is that it's so conflicting what they're seeing in the news, if they're watching the news. This group of people say it's dangerous. This group of people say it's not. How do you convince a kid what's proper, and where does, again, the child have that sense of safety? I'm very worried about it. I think that, and I hope I'm wrong, I just think this is going to come back and um, attack us. I I really do. I'd love your thoughts either one to start.
3: Part of what I'm concerned about when you say it coming back, that there are corollaries with this disease that affect kids, affect other people, that it's not just the disease. You have heart attacks, blood clots, things that are very worrisome that you can't simply say, you, you can't say if you get it and you recover, you're okay. So my sense and the people I work with err on the side of caution, but not to the point where you don't do anything. I share your caution, but I I think you have to find some medium, which is not easy to find, between not doing anything and just just not being very careful.
2: So Abby, I think I think uh, Dr. Strauss, I think you bring up a, a fantastic point in saying that there is going to be a fear about when things will return to normal and if things honestly will ever return to normal in in the near future. I think eventually there will be an increase in anxiety, and I think that. The truth of the matter is, is that we don't know. And that brings up a big topic in general, which is the fear of the unknown. And that is a pervasive theme in in mental health in general and how people overcome the fear of the unknown or have trouble with the fear of the unknown. And the problem here is that nobody knows the magnitude of COVID-19. And while we initially thought that this was a virus and a disease that truly only affected the older population, what we're seeing is research out of New York, left and right, saying that it not only affects the older population, it's also affecting children. We have some children who have died from COVID-19. We've had Kawasaki's disease that's now been a topic in the news regarding children and COVID-19. And the truth of the matter is, is that the fear really lies in not knowing what the future is going to bring. And I don't think that there's a way for us to be honest with children and adolescents and say that everything will be okay when we ourselves don't know how we're going to navigate this situation. I personally feel as a child psychiatrist, the worst thing that you can do to a, a child or an adolescent is to give them a false sense of hope or security when they sense that you're being dishonest with them. Because if they know that you're being dishonest with them, how are we going to expect them to have an open, honest conversation about what their concerns are when we're not being open and honest with them, with what our concerns are. So instead of trying to quiet their anxiety or just say it's all going to be okay when we don't know for a fact what's going to happen until we get a vaccine, I think that we need to be real. We have a problem. We're dealing with the problem. Researchers are learning about this disease. We need to be safe. We need to practice social distancing. You can't play with your friends on the playground and get super close to them. And instead of trying to just say, you know, everything's going to be okay and and being dishonest when they pick up, our cues of being dishonest. I think we need to be a little bit real with them and say, you know, we do have a problem and we've got researchers all over the world working on this together. And this is the first time in history that I can think of that we have the entire world coming together for a common cause, for a medical cause to come up with some kind of cure or vaccine.
1: We can agree uncertainty is tremendous, overwhelming. Sounds like what you're saying as parents, the role is not so much to provide certainty in a time of uncertainty but maybe it's more of a time to make peace with uncertainty
2: without a doubt and i think that i think that validating their feelings is incredibly critical during this time. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to not be sure because the truth is mommy and daddy aren't sure 100% of the time either. And these are real feelings. And part of growing up is learning how to cope with those feelings, learning adaptive coping mechanisms instead of maladaptive ones. And as parents looking out for when we do have maladaptive coping mechanisms in this age group, is your child regressing? Is your child smoking? Is your child utilizing using drugs? Eating disorders right now, eating disorder children's adolescents, that's that's a difficult time for them right now. Because here they have no sense of control. And oftentimes when they have no sense of control, they feel a need to control what they eat. I think that we really need to navigate this together. I don't know, I don't know how you guys feel, but
0: One quick thing, Samantha, and I want to get to how you're seeing it, Bobby, in the older folks. I think we need to spend a little time delineating the difference in how to deal with anxiety between a 7-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old. 100%.
2: So that brings up the fact that there's a developmental trajectory. We don't treat a five-year-old the way we treat an 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, or even 17, 18-year-old. When we deal with a child who's five years old, they really obviously don't have an understanding of what COVID-19 is. And when I see a child, I saw one today who was six years old, I ask them, what do you understand about what's going on in the world? And they may just say there's a virus and that's all I know. And they don't have the mental capacity to really understand. Now, obviously, we're not going to want to educate a five-year-old on the nuances of COVID-19 that would just elicit anxiety in in a child who doesn't even potentially have the capacity to understand what's happening in the world. Whereas when we deal with a 17 or 18 year old or an adolescent, they have a pretty good understanding of what's happening in the world. They're reading the news, they're going on their social media, and every other post has something to do with COVID-19. I think that having an open-ended conversation with them, asking them open-ended questions and letting them lead the conversation into what they want to know and and really telling them what is accurate information and what is inaccurate information and asking them what resources they're getting that information from, because there's so much information that is not true on the internet about COVID-19. So we really need to make sure that adolescents in particular are getting accurate information as parents and and as mental health professionals, instead of them learning information that may not be accurate at all.
0: So, Rob, a question. What do you see along these lines in terms of the adults? Do they have the fears? Are they more cynical? Are they more laissez faire? Are they causing marital stresses that then, even though you're seeing more grandparents perhaps, that ripples down to the children and the other folks? What are you facing?
3: I'm not seeing much that ripples down. Most of the people I'm seeing a majority are in their 60s and 70s. In terms of how the grandkids are dealing with it, like I said, if parents are relatively calm and thoughtful, then the kids seem to adapt very well. In terms of the people I see, anxiety is almost a ubiquitous issue in group I see in their 60s and 70s. Certainly noticed over the years is that when people are younger and they don't do the emotional work they need to do, All that anxiety just gets pushed aside through distractions. You're married, you're working, you're doing this, you're doing that. Then they come here to Florida and suddenly this vision of retirement, we're going to be together, everything is wonderful. Suddenly they're together with a spouse they haven't really spent that much time with for maybe decades they're facing each other in a way that they haven't had to before. And now they're facing each other in a confined space, which they haven't had to do before. So anxiety that they have never dealt with is is definitely at the fore. But it also, like I said before, provides an opportunity. And a lot of people are eager and willing to do the work because they're here and they see that that they're not going anywhere, they, they're not leaving their spouse, they're not going to look for a different living arrangement. And so there's a lot of motivation to to do that uh, important work, and they're doing that. Other people maybe haven't been as emotionally healthy, that the anxiety can become overwhelming and even, even crippling. And it brings up for some real transference issues. It's a woman I spoke to this morning whose favorite store, She's in her 80s. She has a lot of social contact. It closed for good. And it threw her into a tailspin and she started feeling, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? How am I at fault? And it brought up a lot of early transference issues from childhood, always being blamed for things that weren't her doing. Again, there's a lot of opportunity a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, and a lot of opportunity to work things through.
0: One of the things that has always come up with and, and it's we've see, all seen it in mental health, is that when something like the lady you spoke about starts talking, it is not mandatory, it is not limited that they see a professional psychotherapist to do this. Have somebody to talk to. That can it's like letting the steam out of a of a steam pressure cooker and right. it can help enormously because if a person is alone and they haven't really dealt with it, I'm just repeating what you've said, for mm-hmm. heaven's sakes, what a challenge to handle this. And more people than not are not connected to psychotherapists, but they are to friends.
3: But even that connection now is interrupted tremendously because they can't just go out to dinner. They can't just drop over to their friend's house. So, And a lot of older people are sadly technologically challenged. And so the isolation is compounded by their lack of familiarity with technology. And even if they were, a Zoom meeting with somebody isn't the same as going over and hanging out. There are a lot of multiple
0: challenges. There was a picture several weeks ago, and this just captured me, where a young girl walked up to a window and showed her engagement ring to her grandfather that was on the other side of of the glass. That caught it. That, That picture is in my mind forever. And that separation element, and I agree with you so much. One of the things that I think happened with family materials is that we all had this maybe infatuation previously in the power of the internet that we could communicate. Okay, it's two-dimensional, it's not three-dimensional, but that's not the case. So many people don't have. It becomes
3: Mm -hmm. a very different experience.
0: Yes, 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 yes and it it, it troubles me and i don't think we're spending enough time on the reality of the isolation that's now doubled because they don't have the connection they don't have the religious services to go to or whatever or the store that you talked about so what can we do if anything from a two-dimensional platform that we're in right now to get to these people or maybe it's i don't want to be the pessimist but realistically how do we help them let's be positive I think you
3: help them develop their own resources that often have remained underdeveloped for sometimes much of their lifetime. That's all we have, I think. And I think that's a lot.
0: I concur. And, And flipping back over to you, Sam, it's all of a sudden parents are with their kids all day long. And from what I've seen and heard, it's not all bad. I certainly don't want to be again on that side. But parents are used to going to work and coming home. And not being with the kid all day long and then trying to do schoolwork in addition to whatever it, it changed the whole psychodynamics of the family experience for so many people. Are most people rising to the challenge?
2: I think that a lot of people are rising to the challenge, but I think that it's really hard. And I said to some of my patients initially when the first week was going on, I was saying, you know, you got to make a schedule. You got to plan from this time to this time. You're going to do this. you got to do this. you got to do that. And then I implemented it myself. And I looked at myself and I said, oh my God, here I am. I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a doctor. And this is hard. And instead of just trying to say that this is what we should do and everything is perfect, I think it's time to look at each other and say, you know, this is really, really hard. And let's just be real with each other. And and let's focus on self-care and understanding that if we got through the day and everyone's healthy, that is a win. Instead of focusing on how much work we've done or whether the child has gotten a be on, a, on an exam or whatever it is. Let's focus on the fact that everyone's healthy and let's reprioritize what's important to us. Instead of focusing on our work schedule for the day or the school assignment for the day or whatever, however much the child has played an instrument, let's let's focus on the fact that everyone's safe and everyone's healthy and let's use that as a win for the family instead of the A on the test, or reprioritize what's going on. I wanted to bring up one thing that you had mentioned, the, the ring comment, and that triggered my brain into a, a, an issue that's happening for a young lot of young adults right now who are having children, and women who are giving birth right now who are only allowed to have maybe one, if 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 one in some hospitals, significant other in in the birthing room with them. Parents are not allowed to see their grandchildren. Great grandparents are not allowed to see their grandchildren. Um, and, and there's fear that there's maybe not going to be a time for a great-grandparent to see their great-grandchild. And the amount of stress that that brings on a new mother, on a great-grandparent, or or on a grandparent, and how we can do our best to try and deal with those emotions that accompany life that's happening in the world at the same time when there's a lot of sadness and and death that's happening and the two ends of the spectrum and how we really need to kind of navigate that because it's hard being a new mom in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic.
1: So back to what you were saying a moment ago, where you were talking about the multitasking challenges within the family for that. Right now, I, I think probably can feel like doing 10 things at once is the only way that anything will actually get done. Folding laundry, making dinner, watching the kid while you're on a work call. We know that multitasking rarely actually works and can actually increase stress. What can we do from a practical point of view? It sounds like you've found some solutions in your own life for that.
2: We, we have our schedules, we have our structure, we have our walks like everyone's supposed to be doing. But I think, again, that the main thing we need to do is, is reprioritize, say what is most important right now, and really be mindful of the fact that it's okay if everything's not perfect like normal. The fact that we're all adapting and we're getting through this together is, is a win in and of itself and looking at our family members and holding our children for an extra five seconds in the morning and physically having that contact and touch with them is imperative because they're not getting that on the playground. They're not getting that at school. They're not getting that social reciprocity that is so important for development. Critical that we provide as much of that to them as possible in our home environment when they aren't even able to go to school and get it in a social environment face-to-face.
0: And one of the things that, to the flip side of life, for lack of another term, it's called the circle of life. But, Rob, when you see people, they're older, they think about their own demise. They think about their own illnesses more than younger people do. Mm -hmm. And I've met people who say, am I going to die alone in my apartment? Mm -hmm. If I go to the hospital because I can't breathe from just, you know, normal respiratory problem, am I going to get sick and die there? And... It it takes us to another level of looking at our own existences and the loneliness. Is, do you, does that come up in
3: your practice at all? You may not have that population, but does it? With some people, absolutely. The loneliness does come up. And you can be lonely living with a spouse. That's an issue that also has to be addressed. But yes, there's a heightened level of worry of almost, God forbid, I fall and I have to go to the hospital. Will I come out? Will I come back? There, there are real worries as well. A couple of weeks ago, Brent, you
0: used the word assage, but I, I can never say that word correctly. But <laughs> how do we soothe them, or can we not? And should to go back what Samantha said is that you finally you just look at them and say, "Yep, you're right. It's scary," and you give them some strength from that.
3: I, I think so, but also we touched on this before. Ritual is. Particu- I think it's always important for everybody. We're creatures of habit. But during this pandemic, I think ritual becomes exceedingly important to create structure. And one thing I'm so tired of telling people because nobody listens, that exercise is so important to include in your ritual because it makes you feel better. It's healthy for you. and Almost nobody does it, but that's part of a ritual, I think, that is really important.
1: I'm going to go ride my bike after this webinar, as I've been doing every night. That's the one thing, since the gyms are all closed. Mentioned situations where families are cooped up, where you get husbands and wives who never spent that much time together before. Hearing about the rise in domestic violence, what's been each of your observations in this arena?
3: Fortunately, I've not seen that. What I have seen that's been interesting is the husbands, for the first time, actually see what their wives do during the day. For many, it's moved from kind of taking them for granted because they don't think about it, like we took for granted just going out for dinner with somebody. And they're beginning to understand that there's a lot of work that goes on during the day. That's been eye-opening for a number of husbands.
1: So that can be a positive experience.
3: Again, it depends what you do with it, but yes, it's it's been positive. It's been an opportunity to do some work. You're in close quarters, and there's a lot of payoff to engage in some good work together.
0: There is that silver lining. One of the things that has been of concern to me is that a number of the patients that I see, be they with attention deficit disorder or some thought disorder, uh, severe mood disorders, they are still home and fast family had a reprieve from them for a while, and that's not the case anymore, and it's causing a lot of tensions. Then when things happen, and we are mental health, we need to bring this to the forefront. I've had two patients, they're very fragile, very psychotic, and one of them said that she is responsible for bringing the coronavirus. She had heard something on television that A, connected to B, B, connected to C, and the conclusion that she had was that she was responsible. And now the family doesn't have have a daycare center or any other place to occupy this person's time for the day. And the tension in the family has escalated. It has been a problem. I am very hesitant, but sometimes necessary to give more medications to calm these situations down. But we we look at the, the statistics. We have a very high incident in our society. And now all of a sudden it's home.
2: Without a doubt, I think that you had mentioned a few things that patients who have mental health issues right now, some of them are having exacerbations in in their behavior. And as a child psychiatrist, you mentioned ADD and ADHD, and it is very difficult for anyone to sit in front of the computer for hours on end, let alone a six-year-old child with ADD, and who's expected to do school virtually. Those children right now are having a very, very, very difficult time. I encourage parents to buy the ADHD bands that go underneath the desk, buy the squishy balls by the fidget spinners, so they have some kind of physical movement that they can do while they're watching these, while they're doing and engaging in distance learning or virtual school, so that can help the child engage a little bit more, but I think you're right. I think that there is, if there's an underlying mental health disorder to begin with, some of them very much have had exacerbations in those symptoms, and then when you have a child with ADD or ADHD who's hyperactive during the day, it's exhausting sometimes for the parent and then the other child or a sibling in the household can actually be overwhelmed by some of the behaviors that the identified patient had and then develop their own mental health issues in reaction to another child in the house. Really trying to be mindful of the fact that everyone needs to work together and we don't want to have our eyes only on one child, but really all the children and keeping A lookout to make sure that nothing is developing.
0: And sometimes this can lead to inadvertent domestic violence as opposed to the more classic alcoholic husband who comes home and is annoyed and beats on his wife God, horrible stuff. But the inadvertent violence that comes from the frustrations, either in your group, Samantha, or in Rob, in your group. I, I always feel badly talking about the negative, but we all know about the positive, but we got to deal with the dirty
1: stuff. Without and, a doubt,
2: and, and I have seen that, yes. I mean, I did have, I, I have seen that. I have seen some of that this week. Not as much as I would have expected, thank God. But I do see, not domestic violence in terms of adults, but I have seen children and adolescents act out in ways where they have gotten physically aggressive in the household, which is not their normal behavior because they're so overwhelmed with feelings of tension being cooped up in the household 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I have seen that with with children. And, And when the question becomes, do we medicate those kinds of outbursts or do we not? And the truth of the matter is, is in normal situations, if we had an exacerbation in the behavior, when there was some kind of situation that came up, we'd say, okay, well, the situation happened. Let's just take a step back. Let's let the situation pass. It's all over now. The behavior should stop. Now what we have is we have a situation that's pervasive for the unforeseeable future, which puts us as providers in a very difficult predicament as to to what's the best way to go.
0: How amenable are the parent to coming to you and really what skills can you give them? And it's the same to you, Robert. What can you do to help them remove this tension that is a very real tension?
2: Without a doubt. And that's where I think that imperative right now that I've really utilized therapists in the community left and right, trying to find good therapeutic relationships that children and adolescents can develop. So that way they feel that they have an outlet outside of yelling and screaming at mom and dad or a sibling or something like that, because they need an external source. That source used to be, they could go talk to a friend at school. They could go talk to their teacher. They could go play basketball, which they still can, some of them. But, you know, they had external sources. And right now they're missing out on that. And having a therapist who's an external source to kind of vent that emotion to is useful. Really, really useful right now.
0: It normalizes things because they'll say, you know what? She told me this and he told me this. And it tends to diffuse it.
1: And I think that's very important. I would assume that external source is not just for children, but applies to everyone in the family. Totally.
0: And it's what we talked about physicians a couple of weeks ago. They too need an external source. They may not need formal psychotherapy, but they need somebody that they can talk to in days by gone, have a cup of coffee, go for a drink, something like that. But it's the same dynamic. But now in kids who can't handle it or in older folks who don't have the resources for, for different reasons. I, I just hope that we recognize that this is, this is necessary. We need to be able to do this to defuse it before it explodes. So We have a
1: question from Megan.
4: Thanks again for having this meeting. So I'm always outspoken when you guys host these meetings. And this one in particular is very important to me because I'm a single mother of a 13 and 14 year old girls. And Samantha, this is for you. When we first started this meeting, you were talking about children, telling them the truth, not hiding things from them. Well, they've heard about phase one opening in Palm Beach County, and it's so ironic, I think I said this at the last meeting, I just got off a call with Lois Frankel in a town hall meeting and I proposed a question Of course, they didn't answer it because I think it was too political, but was phase one reopening for based on public approval, politics, or was it more geared toward public safety? My personal opinion, and you don't have to answer this, it's more for public approval for politic reasons. But my daughter says, mom my 14 year old says, mom, the salons are open. I need to get a haircut. I need to get my hair done. And I said, I'm not going to the salon. My 13 year old, has braces. She needs to go get her braces realigned. And I said, I'm sorry,
2: but I don't want people going in your mouth. So I want to hear it from other medical professionals. You're bringing up a very valid point. And I, I think that you really need to ask the different places, what are they doing to keep your child safe? What are they doing to keep their staff members safe? And how are their protocols different? And if you're not satisfied with the answer that they give you, then you're answering your own question. And I don't trust anyone. I don't. You can be asymptomatic. You can have the virus, not show
4: symptoms. There's 30% false negatives in all virus testings. And I just, I feel like I don't want them to be exposed. And we're still doing telehealth. I work for Dr. Robert Friedman. We're still doing telehealth. We're not accepting this phase one reopening, I'm trying to convince my kids of the same thing. But they're teenagers, they see the news, they're like, the salons are open, the dentist is open, we gotta go, and I'm like, no.
1: It's and- a whole nother area where kids can be pitted against their parents on top of that. So and on
4: top of that, yeah.
1: Dealing with these emotional issues, what advice do you have for the kids and for the parents to help resolve these type of conflict?
2: I think that in any, whenever you come up with rules in the household, I think consistency is critical telling your child that whatever the rule is and whatever you decide on and explaining it that I'm not comfortable with this for X, Y, and Z reasons. And if if that's the decision you come up with as a parent, you got to be consistent about it because oftentimes what happens in in adolescents and and children in general, what they'll do is they'll come back with you at the question over and over and over again in a million different ways or pit one parent against the other parent in a two-parent household. The lack of consistency and the lack of structure is really more so than anything that causes anxiety within a child so or an adolescent so you need to be the voice of reason you need to have your own rules and however you're going to raise your children and you're going to is your decision and if you're not satisfied again with the response of the orthodontist or the response of the hair salon then you're answering your own question and you don't need to justify yourself under these kinds of conditions your children you are the mother you are the one in control this is your household and and frankly until they're an adult they're living under your rules and you don't need to feel like you need to justify yourself and if you do feel that way the question then becomes why why do you have to have to have to justify yourself in in these kinds when really your number one job as a parent i tell this to all parents number one more so than anything is to protect your children So if you feel that their safety is at risk by going into a hair salon right now or going to the orthodontist right now, then you don't need to justify anything because you're doing your most important job as a parent, which is to protect your children. How do you feel about that?
4: love your answer and I'm so appreciative and it's just dealing with teenage girls. (laughs) I'm
1: sorry. Show them Um. who's boss there, right? (laughs) Similar to that question, I was listening in on Facebook, county commission meeting last Friday, where they debated for four hours whether to reopen the beaches. And they decided, yeah, they're sort of going to open them, but they're going to meet again this Friday, which is tomorrow to decide. If The point is, there was a parent who got up there and she started making a big deal about unhappy with this draconian, unconstitutional, illegal mandates that the government is doing. And then she had her little eight-year-old girl get up and try to read something. And the girl was shaking and nervous. And basically the mother was just prodding her on to say, I need my beach. I need to go there. And what do you make of that? For me? You sure.
2: Okay. I mean, I think that ultimately parents need to be mindful. And I say this in general, the hardest thing about being a parent, one of them is accepting differences in your children and allowing your children to have their own thought process to grow and develop and mature. When you deal with a parent who's trying to antagonize their child to say or do X, Y, and Z, whether it's the fact that we have a parent who was a Harvard grad and the child's maybe getting B's instead of A's, accepting those differences in your children is one of the hardest things to do. We need to remember that that our children have our own lives and they have their own dreams and they have their own visions. And what we want to do as parents is give them the confidence to pursue those dreams and visions. And and what this parent may or may not have been doing was imposing their own views on the child. I'm not saying that they were, I wasn't there. I have no idea. But We want to be really careful as parents not to do that. So that way the child can learn to have a voice of their own.
0: One of the things, and getting back to something you said, Robert, about transference, which I thought was very, the loss of the transference. And I think it overlaps to what you just talked about, both Samantha, you and, and Megan, is that there's an anger. There's an anger that this is happening. And a number of the people that I've talked to, the older people, are angry that they've come to this stage of their lives and they can't do what they want to do. And then, and we try very hard in this venue not to become political. But there's a tremendous, almost explosive at times, undercurrent of anger that the political thing, and we all know from we all took our courses that anger turned inward becomes depression. When you see the folks in your age group, do they deal with the anger? Are they cognizant of it? Is it a process that you are seeing that is a loss, essentially, in the transference to what they were used to being able to do in life, which is no longer there?
3: What I'm seeing, first of all, there's a reality that you need to be restricted and cautious at this point. So the anger often, I guess, just to separate, perhaps some of it is realistic, but much of the anger that you're talking about and that I've seen is really unresolved issues going back to childhood of nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm an adult. I can do what I want. And that has to be worked through and separated. In other words, the the discomfort and the anger in the present that's realistic has to be separated from the unresolved issues. From childhood, where you're feeling, I'm big, I'm an adult, I can do what I want. And that has to be worked through. Can a person work that through by themselves, by and large? Can they... Like not in therapy? Yes. I don't think so. I, I don't see how unconscious, unresolved issues are going to be worked through without without somebody outside of yourself. I would think, sadly, a lot of people would listen to what you're saying and saying, oh, that's
0: ridiculous. Oh, you know, I can do it. Don't tell me that, which is, again, speaks to the problem.
3: I've heard that before, too.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you have. So what can we do to help people who are listening to us, experiencing that? They, that's the person who's probably not even listening to this discussion. But the spouse might be listening and saying, that's my husband.
3: Two things occur to me. One is if you can engender some curiosity Maybe on the spouse, like, oh, that's—is that my husband? And this sounds familiar. Or, gee, that's something maybe to look at. The other thing that I spend a lot of time on is language. How you say something is almost more important than than the words that that are said. And if you say, "Oh, that's my husband," you're just like this. You're expressing anger from your childhood. That is not going to go anywhere. And if you could say, I I listened to a program, some interesting things were said, we talk about why you get angry, you're going to get a very different response. So again, how you present something, being curious and how you present what you want somebody to think about are both critical.
0: I agree. And so hopefully they will then listen and try a different linguistic approach to soften some of the what word anger or dismay or disappointment that's coming across in the innuendos of what's being said. And I'm sure with children it's even more so. But go ahead.
3: That that frustration boils over and then it's it just kind of erupts like a reflex. It's very hard to put things into terms that one can think about. And that's why I often say if only one of the partners can be calm and try to reword something, the other will often be willing to listen. So important how you say it. it. It is critical. The worst situations I've been in as a therapist is seeing a couple who are therapists. They they fight with...
1: A different level.
3: They accuse the other of all kinds of unconscious things which are correct, but they're not helpful. One thing I remember from my early, early training, I was upset with my supervisor, and I was saying, but I made this interpretation, and I know I'm right, and she wouldn't listen to it. And he said, do you want to be right or helpful? And I never forgot the question.
1: Taking a step back, this whole COVID thing reminds me of Katrina, that experience. And we learned a lot from that. We learned, particularly looking at children, that they're likely to suffer emotional disturbances, oftentimes years later. So I put the question out there, can we expect that kids will just bounce back from this whole COVID experience, or do we think there's going to be some long-lasting problems?
2: It's not that simple. One, I think the true answer is nobody knows. That's that's the true answer to all the questions about COVID is nobody knows. The other part about it is how has the child been affected directly? Children tend to internalize a lot and personalize a lot has a child lost a loved one to covid-19 that child i think would respond very differently than a child who has been in somewhat of a more stable environment and hasn't been as directly affected by the virus itself doing something very terrible to a family member or a close friend or something like that like anything when we look at child and adolescent mental health we need to look for risk factors And having a direct connection to somebody who's been very ill with COVID-19 or has been financially affected by COVID-19 or had a sibling who's been affected and, and been acting out or a parent who's had a breakdown... Those kinds of situations, I think, are children who are at higher risk for having emotional disturbance secondary to COVID-19 years later. And I think that our job as professionals and and medical professionals is to really assess risk factors that certain children may or may not have and to assess whether they may be a candidate for potentially being at higher risk for a mental health disturbance later, later on.
0: We have to remember... That a lot of kids come into the COVID crisis with a psychopathology that's already there. Mm-hmm. And is this simply worsening it. One of the things that has always intrigued me, and I don't know enough about the history, we've all seen movies of when London was being bombed in, in World War Two, and the kids would all go into the tunnels. But the bombs ended, and it was man-made, and it wasn't an act of nature. With a hurricane, you could see the hurricane, and you could drive away from it. And I think we have to, as adults, begin to think about, is this going to be different? Is there going to be a different legacy because of that? During the HIV issues, there still had to be a very chosen physical act in order to get the virus. Now all you have to do is go to the grocery store. I think the legacy as the medical community, we, we've got to think about that. And I don't know, I don't know how how it's happening. And I personally am afraid that the media and the, and the politics that are involved can be extraordinarily conducing, not only to kids, to us, to we adults.
1: Yeah. So help. Robert, earlier you mentioned that in your dealing with the families and the grandparents and the grandchildren that you've noticed that the kids seem to be handling this pretty good. So the question I would have For both of you, are children generally better at hiding their reactions to the stress and the anxiety? Is that a problem?
3: They take their lead from their parents. If the parents are open and honest, I think the kids will will mirror that as well.
2: I think it also just manifests differently. So I don't know if they're better at hiding it. I don't know if it's you know, intentional. I think that children with depression look different than an adult an adult who suffers with depression. Whereas an adult can say, I'm feeling sad and I'm feeling depressed and I want to get help. A child who's little doesn't present that way. They present They, they present differently. They present potentially having temper tantrums and outbursts or wetting their bed or biting if they used to not bite. Older adolescents can regress and get involved with drug use and act out or be sexually inappropriate. The ways that children and adults manifest for and present for depression or anxiety or those kinds of things, I don't know if it's so much that they hide it better as much as they present differently. And therefore, we as clinicians need to be very mindful and astute to recognize the difference in presentations. I always say to parents, you know your child better than anyone. Anyone. When you come to me and you say, there is something wrong with my child, I believe you. Right off the bat, I know if you're telling me there is something wrong, I believe that there is something wrong. And the question is, where is that stemming from? How do you know it? And tell me everything you know about your child so I can try and see what you're seeing. We need to work as a team and we need to look look at parents. The other thing, the best resource of all is the friends of the children. They know when there's somebody who's not doing well, they know when their friend is no longer. And I know that, you know, we don't want them on social media 24 seven, but when the child no longer even wants to pick up the phone to FaceTime with their friends or zoom with their friends, that's a red flag. When the child no longer wants to go shoot hoops, that's a red flag. So looking for anhedonia in that population is really, really critical. Grades dropping. There's a lot of red flags and we really need to be mindful to look for them.
1: So this seems to be pretty easy for you guys to do because you're mental health clinicians. We hear there's going to be a surge in mental health cases. And who's going to handle all that? Just yesterday, the United Nations There was an address given to them where there was a warning of a global mental health crisis. They urged everyone listening that mental health needs to be put front and center. The impact especially can be felt very heavily on vulnerable children and young people who've been isolated from friends in school. So what advice do we have for non-mental health clinicians, practitioners, family practitioners, internists, and helping to uncover these problems?
2: First and foremost, I think that old-fashioned rating skills can be utilized because right now we're not getting as much face-to-face, even with the pediatricians. So having rating sales that go out to children and adolescents that they can fill out on the computer or at home and send back to the doctors to kind of screen for mental health illnesses is going to be a priority right off the bat. And parents being in tune, checking on social media, looking at their child's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat's account, seeing who they're talking to on TikTok, and being very, open with them about sharing how their feelings are and 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 asking them hey what's going on And, and being being honest and open with them
0: i also believe that there's a larger component to this in days gone the clergy took care of this and people would hear about this from the pulpit we don't have that much anymore we need to hear about it from politicians who are soothing and respectful and understanding of all these things, and teachers, and and I see celebrities, musicians, and athletes doing this sort of thing. I think this will be a buffer. But what we need to do, and Brent, I I totally agree with you. I don't know what we're going to do because we do not have a system like we. Did. I'll be political. We didn't have enough masks. What well, we don't have enough mental health people who are qualified. And capable of dealing with this. And then just to throw it into the pot, who's going to pay for it? Our insurance companies don't pay for it. It becomes a social situation. And we've got to, as a society, recognize this from the top coming down. I heard Queen Elizabeth maybe two weeks ago do a four-minute comment It was wonderful. I listened to it a bunch of times. It was like Winston Churchill talking to the people. It was soothing. And you had a sense, we'll get through it together. And if you're suffering, it's
3: okay. We'll get through it together. We don't have that now. Maybe another trillion dollars could be found for mental health workers. Please.
1: All they got to do is print up the money, right? That's right. But your
3: your, your comments, I'm
1: sorry,
0: go ahead. I just said it's being done as we speak. This is a huge problem, and I'm, I personally have been in mental health as a professional since the early 1970s. I'm not impressed with our ability to deal with what we did before COVID occurred, and I don't want to make people upset. So let's, let's, instead of being negative, let's look at the positive. Find good sources. Find a good clergyman. Find a good teacher. Find somebody who's really going to help you be connected. Find a friend as a starting point. And, and get let's get rid of the stigma
1: stuff. Done. Let's just get, get, erase it. Well, I think it's really important that we're recognizing this yes. challenge, the challenge to access the challenge with the stigma, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's a big first step.
2: Without a doubt. I think that you guys putting on events like this and being mindful to get the community educated about these topics is critical. So I think it's great that you guys are doing it. And-,
1: and it's great that you're able to be part of this today. So that was a quick hour. We've covered a lot of interesting, important topics. I have to thank everyone for joining. Thank our guests, Dr. Dr. Spiro, and my co-host. This uh, will be available. Listen to on the Medical Society website and the Psychiatric Society website. And we will be back in a few weeks with some more information for you. So stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone. Thank
0: you. Thank you, both of
1: you.